because Christ is the king of all the other kings on earth who saves us. I want to lead us in prayer right now. Uh, So if you'd like to remain standing, I would encourage you to. That just helps us realize we're assembled in the presence of the Lord together as his people. And I want to pray specifically uh, this morning that that God would lead people to redemption in Christ. Um, Our neighbors right around us, I'm going to pray for one of our missionaries, uh, Travis and Sharon Garrison, this morning, uh, as well as for another church in North Portland, Redemption Church, which just got started a couple weeks ago in a pandemic, which is a crazy time to be a gospel witness to this city. So would you join me in prayer? God, you are the one who saves us. That's your work. It's not ours. It's your merit. It's not ours. It's your love. It's not our worth. It's actually your worth substituted in place of our unworth. That is all about you, and we, as your people, celebrate that. God, we, we are a church. The members of this church, we come together, we talk about the gospel, we talk about how you've changed our lives, and we covenant together to represent you to those around us, and we realize that we can be a part of all of that because of you, not because of us, because you have saved us. And God, as we seek to covenant to be your church, a local church here at Harvest that does what you want all local churches to do, to lift up the gospel, to demonstrate and live and speak all of the implications and accurate descriptions of your grace to us in Christ so that other people can have the opportunity to be redeemed as by your grace we have been. God, I confess that that feels to me like an overwhelming task because it is to me an overwhelming task. I cannot, God, even change my own heart, much less somebody else's. And so, God, we come to the one who alone saves us, has saved so many of us, and we know wants to save so many more, and we pray that you would do that work. We pray that you would do that work in us and through this local church. God, I think of, of some of our neighbors Um, The people uh, just to the west of our property here who live in townhouses, many of whom look out their kitchen and and living room windows every day into our parking lot and into the front entrance of our church. Uh, Dozens of people of families. And I have no idea what they all think. Of course, they don't all think the same thing about you, about church. But God, I pray, recognizing these are our neighbors and many others whose windows don't look right out over our property are our immediate neighbors. I pray that our church would have a gracious and positive and and Christ-honoring impact on them. We pray for our soon-to-be future neighbors to the west of our property where uh, houses and, and apartment buildings have started to go up and will soon be occupied. We pray for all of those who will live there. We don't even know who they are. You do. We pray, God, that you would do your work and that you would save and that you would give us a heart to see them and to be for them a gospel witness. God, I think of the neighbors in my own neighborhood, on my own street. Um, I think of my friends, Scott and Mary, neighbors, uh, wonderful people. I pray, Jesus, that you would show them the love that you have for them. And that if you'd use my wife Amy and I to do that, God, would you make your name great? I think of the lady around the corner from us who has a lot of struggles in her life and who rarely talks to anybody that I know of. I don't know her story, but I can see evidence of her pain. I pray that you would bring salvation to her house. And if you would use us, God, would you give us the grace and the love and the courage to be your representatives. Father, I want to pray especially for Travis and Sharon this morning in Central Asia, uh, working to to love you and to serve you and to communicate in a nation where people don't have churches on every other street corner, don't have easy access to a clear gospel witness, a clear explanation of who you are, Jesus And Father, they've been on such a a significant lockdown because of this coronavirus, far more restrictive than anything we have faced here in the U.S. Um, Hardcore restrictions on the movement of citizens. The ability to get out and even talk to people has been so severely curtailed. And now as they've been reporting to us that fighting has broken out with a neighboring country and martial law has come and there's even more restriction, it can be so discouraging to know that that they can't just go down to a church and gather with people like this. As much as our gatherings are restricted, God, they don't have that. And how to to be a gospel witness in that place. But God, we see what can't happen. You move mountains. And so God, I pray for that country. I pray for Travis and Sharon. I pray that the gospel would go out clearly there as people continue to seek 
answers in life. Something's got to be better than this. God, would you give them tremendous opportunities to proclaim the gospel and show the people of that nation that the God who made them and designed them loves them and has died for them. Redeem the lives of many. And lastly, God, I want to pray for our own city, for Portland. Torn as it has been by not only coronavirus restrictions and political strife as our whole nation is right now, um, we do want to pray for our president and those who have been afflicted by this coronavirus and ask for health and for healing because we understand people are people. They're not ideas, and you made them in your image. We pray for healing. We pray for salvation. Father, we pray for this city, and I pray especially for Redemption Church starting in North Portland, originally scheduled to start on Easter and put off because of the pandemic, but it's going on so long they've gone ahead and launched, and I thank you for that, but they can't gather and assemble. It's a tough time to plant a new church, but it's a part of the city that needs it. I pray for Virgil Brown, uh, our brother who is pastoring that church. I pray for the other elders and the members of that church that are together with them starting a new work. Would you bless them even as they gather online this morning right now? Bring a unity, bring a vision to that part of the city. I pray that there would be a redemptive gospel influence in North and Northeast Portland. God, as your family, we come to you now just asking that you teach us, that you would redeem, and that you do your work in us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us. So appreciate all of you guys and girls. The work that you do uh, every Sunday to usher us into the presence of God through music is such an important part of the life of our church. I'm so grateful for what you guys do. They will be back later to finish out our service singing and worship. But this morning, we turn our attention to a familiar passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to the very last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28. While you're turning there, I had an experience a few weeks ago that's probably a fitting way to enter into this discussion that we're about to have from Matthew chapter 28. I went uh, water skiing and wakeboarding for the first time in years. This was before the wildfires hit. This was this beautiful sunny day in, in late August. Um, and I, my, uh, my daughter Elizabeth, my son Tommy, I went out with Mike Janicki on his boat, member of our church here. And we did some water skiing and wakeboarding. It was, it was a great time. I hadn't done that in years. And so I thought, well, this will be interesting. Um, hopefully I can like, not totally embarrass myself. And um, hopefully I can last a long time because I knew any muscle groups that I was going to be using for wakeboarding or water skiing were severely out of shape. Good news is I don't think I totally embarrassed myself. Um, I was teased relentlessly anyway, but that's not the same thing. Um, but it was definitely true that like, I get up on this wakeboard and I'm out there for a few minutes and I'm like, my arms are dying, you know? <laughs> it didn't seem like I'd been out there very long. And you know, the legs and the thighs start to get really sore. So I did it for a while and just got so tired. You know, We're all taking turns and sitting in the boat resting for a while. And as the afternoon went on, I said, all right, I'm going to get back out there again. I've rested. I wonder how long I can go this time. I'm probably not going to be able to walk tomorrow. Uh, but I jumped out there and I got a pair of water skis on. I hadn't put water skis on in forever. And I got up and I'm skiing. I'm like, hey, this is great. I'm going to see if I can get outside the wake without killing myself. This will be fun. So I got outside the wake and I didn't face plant. Yes! <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I realized, like, as the afternoon had worn on, a breeze kicked up. Not a lot of heavy wind, but enough to kind of make the surface of the water a little more choppy than it had been. And so as I'm outside the wake, I'm just hitting all these little bumps. You know, just little tiny ones, not a big deal. And, you know, you kind of use your knees like a shock absorber, and you just sort of take those bumps, and you can continue on. But by this point, like, my legs and my hips and my low back are so tired that even hitting those little bumps, I'm like, oh, I can just feel what little energy is left <laughs> ebbing out of my body. I'm like, if I stay out here, I'm going to ski for, like, 30 more seconds, and I'm just going to have to quit because I'm going to fall apart. And so I kind of snuck back into the wake where the boat was sort of cutting through those, and it was much flatter, and I was like, oh, this is better. <laughs> It's a lot smoother back here, and I was able to stay up on the skis longer because my body just was not in good enough shape. Moving back into the wake made it easier because the boat was leaving smoothness in its wake that wasn't there out on the rest of the river. Now here's the question I have. This is what made me think of that and remember that time just about a month ago. If you, bear with the analogy for a moment, if you thought of your own life as a speedboat going through the water, what are you leaving in your wake? What am I leaving in my wake? 
Um, what do people walk away with once they've interacted with me or been around me and then now I'm gone? What have I left in my wake? Is it rough? Is it harsh? Is it choppy? Is it smooth? Is it gracious? Is it Christ-like? Is it gospel-centered? What have I left in my wake? This morning we are in the, the fourth and final of four sermons that we're, we're using to kick off kind of our, our fall, a new year of ministry as it were. Uh, that's not unusual for us as a church. We, we often start out kind of September, October time frame, sort of refocusing, the summer's behind us, you know, school year starts, boys, that looked different <laughs> this year, right? So, so who are we going to be as a church? And man, it's, it's still the fall. We still want to look at who we are as a church, but boy, that really, really looks different this year. And so we've had a special emphasis these last four weeks in recognizing that you know our environment has changed significantly for all of us as individuals and for us as a church. And yet, even though our environment has changed, our mission has not. Our mission hasn't changed. Jesus still wants a church to be a church. He still wants us as Christians to be his disciples with everything that that entails. And so this fall, we've realized, you know, so much of the coronavirus and the restrictions are making us all feel like we're back on the heels of our feet. It's like life is just happening to us and we're constantly just trying to read and react and whether it's how do I get my kids in school or for students, how do I figure out this whole like online or semi-online thing or whatever it is depending on your school and that's different for everybody. How's my work going to change if I'm not working from home and I didn't used to, if I'm not working at all? I mean, the questions are just like endless, right? And answers are really elusive and the environment's changing. It, it, It leaves us like we're feeling back on the heels of our feet. And so our emphasis this fall is to, to lock arms together as a church family and say, how can we get forward onto the balls of our feet, so to speak? How can, we, how can we lean into and pursue the mission that God has given us? Yes, the environment has changed. Uh, we want to acknowledge that. We don't want to be unrealistic about that at all. But our mission hasn't. And we don't want to let these things prevent us from being who God has called us to be. So it's not really about what we can't do we want our thinking and our, and our life together as a church to be defined by what we can do in pursuit of our mission for Christ. That's partly why some of us are here on campus. We can't have as many people here as we did before, but we can have some. That's our focus, you see. So, what are we going to do? What does that all mean? Well, for four Sundays, we've been using this analogy of a four-legged stool. The idea here is that, I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is your home church, We want to just clear the decks maybe from what we normally do as a church and what we normally engage with as people and say, if we can focus on these four things, however that plays out in each individual's life, if we can focus on these four things, we're doing it right. Let's put the other stuff aside and get lean and focus on what God has called us to. What are we doing? We're going to pursue God. We're going to pursue the church gathered. We're going to pursue one another. And then the fourth and final one we're going to talk about this morning is pursue the lost. And in each of these, we put a strong emphasis on saying, not only what does the Bible teach about this in concept, but what specifically are we going to go do about it this fall as a church? Just some concrete activities that we can hopefully all lock our arms together and do as a church. I want to just invite you into that process. This morning, we talk about the, the fourth and final one of these, reaching and pursuing the lost. The point we're going to see from our text this morning in Matthew 28 is that Christians are appointed as ambassadors to represent Christ in our spheres of influence. That's your mission if you're a follower of Jesus. That's your commission. That's your purpose. It's my purpose. We are appointed as ambassadors to represent Christ in our sphere of influence. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 28, let me read this passage this morning. The final words of Jesus spoken in this gospel account of his life. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, his gathered 11 disciples, Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he's about to leave them. His final words. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. God, would you open up our eyes to see wondrous things from this very familiar to many of us part of your word. For our good and your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, This morning is going to be a slightly unusual sermon. We're going to do the same thing we did last week. That is, I'm going to preach the first chunk of this sermon, working our way through the text, and then for about the last 10 minutes or so that I would normally be preaching, I'm going to tag team with Jordan, our associate pastor here, and he's going to come up and explain some of the things that he's working with many of our members to get off the ground that we're going to do as a church in support of what we're teaching here. So be a little bit of a tag team kind of sermon this morning. I want to start by walking us through this text. We see in what for many of us is a familiar passage, but I hope we see this with clear and fresh eyes and how to apply it in a completely different, for many of us, environment than we've ever experienced before. We're going to see three things here in this text this morning. We're going to see a clear picture of our commander. We're going to see a clear picture of our commission, what he's commanding us to do. We're going to hopefully see a clear picture of our companion. All three are important. We start in verse 18 looking at our commander. Jesus came and said to them, the, again, 11 disciples, minus Judas, who's already betrayed Jesus, and he's gone at this point. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He introduces the commission before he gets into the meat of it, into what he's telling them to go do, by reminding them who is speaking to them, which is essential. It's essential because... The nature of the commander affects the way the command is received, but the character of the commander also affects the way the command is understood. Jesus is not seeking to simply impart information. He's trying to make an impact on his followers based on who he is. The language of these verses harkens back to Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 14 and following. Uh, I don't have the time to go back and read that right now, but it's Daniel's vision of the, the Son of Man, as he calls it, from the Old Testament, coming before the Ancient of Days. That is, It's a prophetic picture of God's Messiah coming before the throne room of God the Father, and he was given authority, and he was given a kingdom that lasts, and Jesus is now hearkening back to that. He's saying, I'm that guy. I am the one that Daniel saw in that vision so many years ago. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I am now about to give you, my followers, a commission. The implications of this become clear immediately, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ has given you a purpose. He's given me a purpose, a mission. He didn't necessarily consult with us. He didn't ask us what we want to major in or what we want to make of our lives. He said, you're my follower, therefore, here's your job. I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. I have made you mine. That is all to your good. Now, I send you out on my mission. Every day, Christian, that you and I wake up, we have a mission, a mandate that was given to us by our supreme commander. In fact, the universe's supreme commander. And that mission is, wherever God has placed you, you and I are ambassadors. Ambassadors, representatives. We are called to represent Christ, to that workplace where you work, or that school where you attend, that neighborhood where you live, that network of friends that you are in the midst of, that family that you are a part of, all of those spheres of influence, the people that we naturally interact with, Christ has made you and I missionaries, as it were, to those people, ambassadors to represent him. Even the homes into which we live, to represent Jesus to our spouse, to our kids, God has placed an embassy of his kingdom in your neighborhood, in your office, in your school, and that embassy is you. It's me. This is the king talking. If you're anything like me, we generally don't see ourselves first and foremost as missionaries to our neighborhoods or ambassadors to our workplaces. Let's be honest. I'll own it. When I roll out of bed in the morning, I immediately start thinking of my to-do list. (laughs) I go, 
empty the dishwasher, grab the cup of coffee, sit down with my Bible, pray through my prayer list if I'm really on top of my morning that day, um, get showered, get dressed, get going. Like, I'm moving, I'm moving, and I'm thinking about a million things, good things, but I'm not thinking of myself as, to whom can I represent Jesus today? How am I representing Jesus to those around me? What am I leaving in my wake? What will I leave in my wake today? Juggling all of life's responsibilities is hard enough, especially now, when all this pandemic stuff has made everything so much more complicated. Knowing who your commander is can help us reframe our perspective. Knowing who our commander is can help us reframe our perspective. Christ is the one sending us. So who is our commander? Just just in a couple minutes we have left, let me just point out a couple of things here. Christ is the one sending us. I'm sorry, I've gotten behind on my slides. There we are. And so what does that mean? Christ is both our sovereign, the one who commands our days, but he is also the sacrificial lamb who loved us to the point of death on a cross. I think those two things were abundantly evident when Jesus stood there and uttered these words to those 11 disciples that day. Here he is alluding to Daniel 7, saying, I am the son of man who comes before the ancient of days to receive a kingdom and an authority and a power. They knew the prophecies of Daniel. They knew this is God's sovereign one. But they were also looking at the Jesus whom they had just seen die mere days before and whom they had witnessed rise from the dead. And he gives them just enough time to get their heads around those two facts And then he gives them a commission. I am both your sovereign. I'm also the one who loved you enough to die for you. Both at the same time. I think his commission had an impact on them. Along the idea of of, of him being the sovereign, he's the one who commands our days. This whole idea that, that God is the one, Jesus Christ is the one who defines what a Christian's life is for, what purpose it is serving. Such a good thing to remember, so hard to remember. Um, the end of our service this morning, we're going to formally introduce a song that we have actually sung a few times over the past couple of years, but we want to make it a, a regular part of our kind of repertoire of music that we sing at Harvest. It's, it's a song called Facing a Task Unfinished. And I love the words of the song because they're inspiring and convicting at the same time. Uh, the song starts, uh, Facing a Task Unfinished, that is, sharing the gospel with a lost world a task that drives us to our knees and a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. I love singing those words because it's like, ah, that's me. (laughs) The need is undiminished. There are millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people on this planet who are destined for hell if they don't hear about Christ. They need to know that the God who made them didn't make them on accident. He loves them desperately. They need the opportunity to know their God. And that undiminished need rebukes my slothful ease because so often I go home and the last thing I want is to talk to people about Jesus. I want me time, right? It's a good reminder. It's not a shame song. It's a conviction song. It's a good reminder that Christ has given us a mission. But he is not only our sovereign who commands our days. He's also the sacrificial lamb who loved us to the point of death on a cross. And does that change the way you hear a commission from him? It should. When he not only says, do this because I'm God and I'm the king and I'm telling you, so go do it because you don't have a choice. Actually, that's all true, but it's not only that. The one who's telling us do it isn't just saying do it because I'm the boss. He's saying do it because I loved you enough to give up my life for you. Now you live your life for me. Does that change the command? You bet it does. You bet it does. Because you see, when you love somebody, you learn to love what they love because of everything they've given you and your pleasure in them. Um, True confessions, I have seen virtually every episode of Downton Abbey. Watched the whole thing. Now, the show, probably not my thing. Now, what I would choose to watch, if I've got a Friday night by myself, I'm going to put on an episode of Downton, right? It's not normally the kind of thing I go for. But I watched it with my wife, Amy, who loved it. 
Now, it's true. Let me say, as I got to watch it, there was a lot about the show to admire. I'm kind of a history guy, and so I loved watching them bring to life um, an era of history that, of course, I never experienced and really didn't know much about. I find all that really interesting. And, and the more I watched it, the more I realized just the show itself is well-written, is well-acted. I mean, it, it was very, there's a lot to admire about it. So I did enjoy quite a bit about it on its own. But at the end of the day, like, that's not the kind of thing I would go for. And yet I could say... You know, and it was just so awesome, you know, when Mr. Carson finally asked for Mrs. Hughes' hand in marriage. Wasn't that great? No, that's, that's not quite where I'm at. But I could love and actually enjoy the show because I'm enjoying it with a lady that I love and who has given me so much. And while there were things about the show that I liked on its own, what I really loved is enjoying something with her, enjoying her enjoyment of it and enjoying that whole experience together with her. And she's watched countless movies with myself and my son that she wouldn't have chosen herself, and she's done it for joy because that's what happens when you love somebody. When Jesus says, I've given my life for you, now go pursue the vast dream that I have to redeem humanity, it changes us because we're not just being told to do something, we're being invited to love as we have been loved. So the commander matters. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, here's what you do. So what do we do? We've seen the commander. Now in this passage, we see the command, the commission, what our marching orders are. If you're familiar with this passage, there's very little that's new here. There's a ton that is profound here. It's profound in the most fundamental sense. It's fundamental. It's, it's basic. It's essential. What is our commission? What does he send us out to do? He sends us out to be disciples, that is, followers of Jesus, learners of Jesus, those who live for Jesus, to be disciples who make disciples. To be disciples who make disciples. Much could be said here. We'll focus our comments this morning on three brief observations. First of all, the content of that. Two things, baptizing people, Jesus talks about, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then secondly, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's the content, as it were, of the commission. By referring to baptizing new, uh, he's talking about new converts. He's talking about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, substitutionary death in our place, so that we can repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ and find eternal life, grace, freely given salvation. Sharing that message with people who don't know it so that they have an opportunity to give their lives to Christ, experience his salvation as we have, and become part of his family. And he calls that baptism because baptism is the way that we publicly identify ourselves as members of Christ's family because of our faith in him. That's what baptism means. That's why it's so important, we believe, that, that Christians get baptized publicly before their church family once they have given a credible profession of their own faith, once you're old enough to give a profession of faith. That's why we don't baptize infants in Baptist churches because people need to understand, I have put my faith in Christ, and when I've done that, I'm saved, and baptism is how I now show that I'm part of Christ's family. So when he says, baptize, make disciples, and I'm going to tell you what that means, baptize them. That means help usher new people into my kingdom. My family is ever-growing. It is ever-expanding. It is always expansive in its outlook, not internally focused on us and staying away from everybody else. The point is that Jesus' disciples are to live in such a way as to seek opportunities to make the good news of Jesus known to those around us. Secondly, he says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Such an important phrase. Such an important phrase. Not just teaching them a bunch of stuff. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Once a profession of faith in Christ is made, we continue to help one another to learn how to more effectively live for Jesus. Both of those are the same mission. If I'm communicating the gospel to somebody who does not know Jesus as their Savior, or I'm helping a fellow Christian grow deeper in their knowledge of and dependence on the grace of God in the gospel, both cases I'm making disciples. Jesus says, that's your mission. Do them both. That's why our mission statement as a church reads the way it does. The language and the words were all carefully chosen. Harvest Community Church exists to glorify God by learning together to live like Christ and reaching out in his name. 
learning together to live like Christ. Not just learning stuff, but learning to live and to reflect who he is. That's what we help one another do. We constantly learn and we constantly help one another grow. Parents especially. If you've got school-aged children or teenagers, my heart goes out to you right now um, because life is so hard. School is so crazy hard. And if I can encourage you to never stop preaching the gospel to and encouraging the spiritual growth of your kids. Not in addition to the craziness, but simply in the midst of the craziness. Many parents I've talked to feel so inadequate for what's on their plates right now. Working, homeschooling, dealing with kids who are too socially isolated. How do we do all of this? And we're at our wit's end. When I encourage us to continue to disciple them, I don't want to add another burden. I want to say, let's live the gospel in front of our kids. Show them how strong out you are. Show them what it looks like to beg Jesus for strength and to, to ask for forgiveness and to live in the power of the Spirit when we are weak. Don't just lead your children to pray a salvation prayer and then mop your brow that we're done. Those professions of faith are so important, but continue to cultivate evidences of salvation, showing them how to depend on the Spirit, how to learn the truths of Scripture, how to connect with God's people. God will use you to make disciples of your own kids. So we're to baptize, we're to teach, but one more thing about this. Notice the scope of this commission. Make disciples of... All nations, I deliberately skipped over that. I want to come back to it now. Make disciples of all nations. In the language of the first century in which this was spoken, that means all people groups, all ethnicities, all religious and ethnic backgrounds, people all over the world. This is a global, unified vision of Christ. You see, the gospel-shaped mind is intensely inclusive. Loving diversity seeing even our opponents or our ideological enemies as people who were made in God's image first and foremost. You know the gospel is shaping your mind when you see even somebody whose ideas repulse you as a person made in God's image first, not as a representative of that hated ideology. Brothers and sisters, whom do you find it most difficult to love? We've all got them. (laughs) We've all got them. Who do you find it most difficult to love? Supporters of Donald Trump? Black Lives Matter protesters? An offensive neighbor? An abrasive coworker? People who talk, smell, or eat different, or look different? The sinful heart will always seek to divide and to feel good about myself because I'm different than the other, whomever the other is. The gospel-shaped mind seeks to make disciples of all nations because every human is made in God's image and God wants every person, not just the Jewish people in the Old Testament, not just Western people or white people, God wants every human being on this planet to be reconciled to his or her Savior. That is why Christ came. So that's our commission. Our commander, we've seen, the sovereign and loving king, he's given us a commission to be disciples who make disciples of everybody. It's an inclusive, outreaching, come-in mindset. And there's one more thing to notice here, and that is our companion. Our companion. The last words of the Gospel of Matthew, second half of verse 20, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He said that right before he left. It's a funny thing to tell somebody right before you're going to leave, huh? I'm with you. You turn around, you walk away. What? (laughs) That's what he did. Because he isn't with us anymore physically the way he was with the disciples up until that point. He made that very clear to them. But he says, I am still with you in my presence and I will be with you as you are pursuing this mission. God is with us primarily through his word, through his spirit who indwells us, and through his people as we gather together and do life together as his family.
God's word, God's spirit, and his people. He says, these are the vehicles through which you will encounter my presence and I am with you as you are disciples making disciples. And the implication of this too is clear. The comfort of Christ's presence should shape our experience. This is why meditating on Scripture rather than just reading it is so important, you know? Because if we're, if we're letting the Scripture penetrate it to, to our experience, it starts to shape how we see things rather than just, I did my Bible reading and now I'm off dealing with the fear and anxiety. By the way, what do my fears and my anxieties show that my heart is really longing for? Anxiety shows us what we want most. Fear shows us what we're most terrified of and what we long for the most. So what do my fears and anxieties say I'm, I'm longing for most? A political win for my guy? Whomever my guy happens to be? Note, I'm not suggesting at all that it's anything but normal to feel fear and anxiety. It is normal. Um, I don't want to paint a picture here, even in this brief comment, that joy in Christ means fear and anxiety goes away, or that if I'm experiencing fear and anxiety as a Christian, I'm somehow automatically failing Um, That's not what we're suggesting. This is not a flip-the-switch spirituality. If you just believe the Bible, all your fears will go away and you'll be a super Christian. That's not what we're saying. What we're talking about is whether or not my fears and my anxieties are in the driver's seat. (laughs) Are they ruling my life? Joy in Christ is not the absence of anxiety or pain or fear. Sadly, I wish it was. (laughs) It's not. It's not the absence of fear and anxiety. Rather, joy and anxiety can and often do exist side by side. The question is, which one am I anchoring my soul in? Meditating on scripture like Psalm 63 helps. David wrote it when he was deeply hurt and he was in real distress and he's fighting to hold on to what he's known and what he's experienced about God's love and goodness and satisfying power. At a time when everything is crashing down around him, we could benefit from that example right now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is with us no matter who occupies the White House and who constitutes the Supreme Court for the next four years. Does my experience as a follower of Christ reflect that? Jesus Christ is on his throne even if the wrong ideologies prevail and even if we lose every religious liberty we have enjoyed throughout the history of this nation. I hope and pray that does not happen, but even if it does... Christ's mission is unchanged, as is our commission. He is with us, and that makes all the difference. So, as I turn to wrap up my comments, is the statement, I am with you always to the end of the age, making an impact on your experience right now. We've seen our commander, we've seen his commission, and we've seen his promise to be our companion. So last thing, let me just say this. We've been saying since August that joy is mission critical for Christians, especially at a time like this. Christ-rooted joy in the midst of fear or pain or anxiety and the chaos of our current world climate creates an impression. If you actually have that real joy in the midst of all the other stuff that goes with it, it creates an impression. It leaves an aroma, if you will. It's what the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 14, the fragrance of Christ. So Christian, can I ask the question, how do we smell? How do we smell? The Apostle Paul says it's, it's like the, the fragrance of Christ. You, you create the aroma of Christ. It's the aroma of death to those who are dying, but life to those who are being saved. It's the same idea we started this with. Like, What are we leaving in our wake? <laughs> Most of us would be mortified to walk out of our houses into public without taking a shower first, right? Making sure all the body odor is taken care of. But how do we really smell relationally? spiritually. What do we smell like? What are we leaving in our wake? Being the fragrance of Christ might mean treating people as people, not ideas. Might mean loving your enemy. Might mean praying for the lost in your circle. Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn the world, but to save it. So often I wonder if the fragrance of churches is to condemn the world either by our harsh language or by our disengaged indifference. Christ came to seek and save the lost, and we get to carry out that commission. I want to ask Jordan to come up here for a minute, because he's going to take a few minutes and tell us how we're pursuing some of these things, both as individuals this fall and as a whole church. How can we lock arms together and not just agree with our commission, but do it as Harvest Community Church? So 
Take us in there, brother. Yeah. So many different ways for this to play out in our lives, which feeds into some of our strengths, but also it feeds into some of the areas that we can continue to grow in, all depending on how God created you and your natural wiring and makeup. A uh, question for you. How do you respond when you see someone who's really, um, a, a really thoughtful, a really thoughtful person? Uh, whenever you see a husband buy, buying flowers for their wife with no birthday or no anniversary, when you see that action, what's your thought? What's that thought whenever you're driving down the road and you see the mom and the, and the kid who are at a lemonade stand raising money to feed all of the starving children in Africa? What's your thought whenever you uh, peruse Instagram and uh, you see a, a mom or a dad build this package for a teacher that they're sending off because they just want to say thank you? <laughs> what are the things that go through your mind? Well, first and foremost, if you're on the receiving end of someone's thoughtfulness, I know where your mind's at. Thank you. That's great. We, we'd love to receive gifts, right? When you see someone who is thoughtful, um, are you thinking that the world is actually a really good place because uh, maybe you're not naturally that way, but I'm so thankful that there are other people in the world who are like that? Or maybe when you see these kind acts, these thoughtful acts, maybe shame kind of creeps in and you're like, man, I wish I could be as thoughtful as that person. Or um, for some reason, do you make fun of them? Suck up. They're just trying to get in good with the teachers. They're just trying to get in uh, good with this or that or the other. How do you respond whenever you see thoughtful people around you? Some people, some of us in this room and at home watching are uh, naturally people who think about others. We're naturally what you might want to call good people. And others have to work hard at it. Not necessarily because it's um, a sinful thing, but it's because it's a, a natural wake up, uh, or, sorry, a natural makeup of, of who we are. Um, there are millions of reasons of why people behave this way, but our world needs more frequent glimmers of hope, and Jesus is calling us as his followers to be this glimmer of hope in the world around us. Will you join me, and will you join this church in being this place of being the fragrance of Christ, putting out the glimmer of hope, working with or against our natural tendencies, because I believe he's calling us all to be this in one way or another. Living your faith in Jesus out loud means your words and your actions reflect the character and nature of who Jesus is. What we do matters. And in lots of ways, what we don't do is also noticed in the world around us. So for the next uh, couple of minutes, what I want to do is to be able to give us a, um, a tangible way for uh, many of us to be able to live the gospel in an unconventional way. It's not a hard way. It's not something that's rocket science, but it's a way for us to live in this season to reflect Jesus in a, in a different way. And, um, and the, the thing that I want to talk about is for all of you um, who have kids in kindergarten through 12th grade, how can we love the teachers of our kids? That's the challenge for us. Again, it's not rocket science. It's not anything um, earth shattering, but we just tend to live our lives, kind of like what Matt was describing earlier. We wake up, we think about our day, we do the things that we need to do, and we just get going. And, and we're not evil people for doing that, but sometimes it's hard to think outside of our box to think about other people. So let's just talk, uh, stop, take a second, reframe our minds, and say, for all of you who have kids in kindergarten through 12th grade, the encouragement is how can we love teachers in this area? And this fits the mission of who we are as a church. 
uh, as we have sought out intentionally to have a relationship with Tobias Elementary, which we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. Um, we have sought to have a relationship with the administration in lots of different ways throughout the year. We do teacher appreciations twice a year where we just go to the teachers and just say, we love you. Here's a gift that we've created for you. And we just hope it's a small token of our appreciation for everything that you do. We also, whenever there's not coronavirus in the world, uh, we help them with the carnival that they do every year because they just need extra hands and, and feet to make their carnival happen, to serve their families. We come in as a church to help be able to do that with them. Uh, also, our community care day that we do once a year, we go to their campus and we help spruce it up before school starts. I mean, these are just ways that we support the administration intentionally and purposefully. We also support the students in unique ways. Uh, we have a, a supply drive for the kids so that they have the supplies that they need to be able to be successful, as well as a snack drive so that kids um, are, are full in class. This school is not a Title I school, but many kids go to this school hungry because they don't have the food or the resources at home. And so teachers, these teachers have said to us, it's great for us to be able to have snacks in the, kid, in the, in the classrooms so that these kids can be at the best mind frame to be able to learn. And so we come alongside them and say, sure, we could provide that kind of stuff for you. So the administration, students, parents, then the Thanksgiving season, our harvest bread box, our Thanksgiving packages, uh, care packages that we create go first and foremost to the families that go to the school. I say all this not to puff us up as a church, but to say this is an intentional thing that we have chosen to do as a church because we, we know it meets a really felt need. Sometimes we're really great at this, and sometimes uh, we just need coaching along the way to be able to do it better and better as we just seek to have this relationship. Now, for us, as individual followers of Jesus who are in this church community, I want to talk to parents of, of our students. I also want to talk to our students as they're in class with these teachers. I also want to talk to those of us that are grandparents of kids well, grandparents, so your kids, if you, um, if you know that, that your kids are the ones who are coaching and walking with their kids whenever they're in school, so how can you come alongside your adult children? And I also want to talk to our teachers who go to church here and just say, man, we support you and we want to come alongside you. So here's my encouragement for us. First and foremost, parents, can we intentionally for the next two weeks, let's say, for the next two weeks, think of, think of unique ways that we can go out of our way to email our kids' teachers and just say thank you for all that you're doing. They are in a season where everything is unconventional and they're getting a lot of stress pushed their direction because not everything is perfect. They hear more complaints than they do compliments. So what would it look like for us to be the aroma of Christ and just send an email that is two or three sentences long that just says, I really appreciate all that you're doing for my kid. Thank you so much. You're a blessing. How far will that go? It could go a long way. What other unique ways can we connect with our kids, teachers, just to say thanks? Even if there's things that can be corrected or be done better, a thanks can go a long way. Secondly, students, um, it is so easy to complain about school. <laughs> we don't like doing school online. We don't like being on Zoom or Google Meets. I love turning off my camera because I don't want to, to, to just, I don't want anyone to see me and I don't want to see anyone else and all that they're doing. And just realize your teachers are on the other end, either in their classroom trying to teach or they're on the other end at their home trying to teach you. And the, the, the physical connection that they love having with you in class is gone. And so when everyone is disconnected on Google Meets, it is just brings extra stress. So what can you do to be able to represent Jesus to your teacher? doesn't have to be rocket science again, but what can you do just to be a, a loving individual that reflects Christ in all that you do and all that you say? To the grandparents out there, your adult children need support and need help, need encouragement. Can you give your adult children a date night because they have been working all day and they've been with their kids all day trying to be um, a help to their teachers for their school and they're stressed out because they don't even know how to do technology in the way that, that, that their teachers are trying to do it and try to stay connected. So as a grandparent, what can you do to support your adult children during this season? 
And lastly, but definitely not least, if you know a teacher, A, that is a part of this church community, what can you do to express your appreciation for them? I've talked to a number of these teachers, and they're, they're going through a really difficult season. They've expressed at different times that they definitely hear more complaints than compliments. So what can we do in an unprecedented season to just say, thank you for all that you do. I know that you work hard at what you're doing. And not just people in this church, but people in your life. People that follow Jesus, people that don't follow Jesus, how can you reflect Christ? And in this season or the next couple of weeks or the next month, as school continues, I think we all can have a role to play in being able to reflect Jesus in an intentional way. Uh, if it's not uh, exactly with the school or teacher, there's lots of ways for us to be intentional. Join us as we reflect Christ together, as we be the aroma of, of Christ, as we live our faith out loud, because what we do matters, and what we don't do actually gets noticed as well. I want to invite our worship team up as, as we seek to, to wrap this part, portion up of our service, um, and we're going to dive back into singing together the glories of who Jesus is. So uh, I want to pray for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll get back into singing. Jesus, thank you so much for your amazing love for us. The thing that comes into my mind is that I have so individualized my faith and my relationship with you that my relationship with you stops with me. A lot of my prayer life deals with me and the emotions I'm feeling or the things I need from you or how you're dealing with me. And these are good things, God, because my relationship with you is so personal. But there are many times that I don't intentionally get outside myself to seek to love you to my neighbors, to my kids, teachers, or whoever else in the world around me. So God, give me eyes to lift up off myself and see what you're doing in the world around me. And God, lead me to join you. Holy Spirit, lead us, love us, train us, because we don't know how to do it well, but we do it well whenever we follow you. So lead us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're in the building with us or you are online at home, would you please stand with us as we sing our next uh, three songs? <laughs> 